Hello and welcome back to this episode of Sudden School from Home. I believe this is our sixth episode um, of this season and uh, Luke can't be with us this time. So uh, it's just uh, myself, Cameron, uh, Locke and Ken. Uh, Locke and Ken, it's good to to be able to see you, if only over Zoom. <laughs> it's good to be here. Yeah, it is. Now, um, this week uh, is uh, on the... Um, 2300 days prophecy and uh you know one might suppose that this would be a subject that you know people on this podcast would have a great affinity for because of all the numbers involved i don't know if you've ever had this experience like of someone assuming that because you have a particular interest or can uh because you have a particular interest you would find something that they associate with your interest to be interesting, but you don't. You know, I, I sat in on a committee meeting. I was chosen to do data analysis at the school where I worked, and they said, uh, "Oh, you, you're going to really like this because you're a mathematician. You must love looking at numbers. Um, join the data analytics team." Um, <clears throat> what the data analytics team was tasked with in practice was not, in fact, crunching any numbers at all. We spent our entire time looking and comparing various software packages that would crunch the numbers for us and do all the analysis and just tell us what the data meant. And um, uh, that didn't make me like my job. That made me want to quit my job and go and work for a company that makes software to analyze data for schools. <laughs> uh, and I'd never successfully communicated to anyone at the school that just because it was vaguely related to numbers um, didn't mean that a mathematician would find it interesting. I mean, there's a lot of difference between group theory and accounting. Um, so, um, I am a mathematician and by and large, I enjoy sort of problem solving and I enjoy numbers and I enjoy finding structures and patterns in the world. But for some reason, I find it hard to enjoy a discussion on the 2300 days. Well, Cam, look, you're not alone there. Uh, it's a topic that I find uh, somewhat baffling. Um, and, and, it's, and, and part of it is that it's, and this arises from the discussion that we had right at the start of this series. It's the way of approaching it that I find baffling and the degree of certainty that it seems to produce on what to me seems quite potentially ambiguous evidence. And what I mean by that is this. I'm not a historian. Uh so I don't have the expertise to analyse the historical data. Um, uh, but often I think we seem to be saying, well, here's the time frame that we think is relevant uh, or is the, is, is the correct interpretation of this. Now let's have a look at the events that could be ascribed to that time frame. Oh, yes, look, here's one. Um, well, that's it. That therefore proves our assumed time frame. Um, that's just how it feels to me. Again, I don't have an expertise sufficient to engage rigorously with it, but it's 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 a sense. So this is a really great opportunity for me to share an anecdote that I wanted to share in that very first episode. Um, and we always have more thoughts than can possibly fit into a conversation with multiple people, even when it's only three, two or three of us on the podcast, <laughs> let alone an, you know, an actual Sabbath school group with a dozen people chatting. The anecdote relates to a time when I was living in Germany and traveled to Berlin for a conference for work. And um, 
were basically trying to think of are there any particular sorts of things on the more tourist sort of side of Berlin that I'm, I'm particularly interested in. And when my wife and I sort of compared notes, one of the things we wanted to do was visit um, the Pergamon Museum, which is in Berlin. And it has the, it's named that because it has the Pergamon altar, um, which is its sort of main uh, core um, exhibit. But it also has the Ishtar Gate. And the Ishtar Gate was the eighth gate to the inner city of Babylon. And it is presented in the Pergamon Museum as uh, effectively as a reconstruction. And, and actually, as you wander around and listen to the audio guide and learn a little bit more about it, what becomes apparent is what you're seeing is not predominantly the original Ishtar Gate of, of ancient Babylon, but a whole lot of recreated blue glazed tiles that were, that were created to, to match it. What they've done is reconstructed what they think the Ishtar Gate would have looked like and some of the tiles are genuine. Um, they, they were found in the archaeological site. And um, when you learn this, you can actually see it, look and see straight away. They're a little bit more faded and a little bit more, more cracked and crazed and, and obviously have more of a patina of age. And there's a fascinating discussion to be had here that we won't have about what's the best way in a museum to display historical artifacts like this. Because a, a, a small pile of vaguely blue glazed tiles, you know, in a in a large pit of sand would be the authentic way to convey the state of the Ishtar gate in modern times, but wouldn't convey any of the glory or majesty of the gate itself. Whereas what they've done, and, and it was done a hundred years ago. Um, so it definitely was done in a different era of thinking about museum artifacts, but they've created the Ishtar gate and you can walk through it. And it's, it's amazing. And the, the reason I'm sharing the anecdote is because when I was in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin and I stood in front of the Ishtar Gate, which was a gate of the city of Babylon, lo and behold, what was I looking at? But a large blue wall regularly inset with golden depictions of animals, things like dragons and bodies of lions with eagles' heads and all manner of other things. And um, I'm not sure that I can remember all of the details in... Um, you know, in their, in their particulars. But what I remember was just overwhelmingly was the sense of, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. I've grown up in the Adventist church. We've read the book of Daniel backwards and forwards and upside down and inside out for years and years and years and years. Why is it that I've never encountered in my Adventist Bible studies the very simple historical fact that the kinds of images we find in Daniel's prophetic visions were literally emblazoned on the towers of the gates of the city of Babylon. And, and it just, it really struck me, overwhelmed me with this sort of feeling of, hang on, hang on, hang on. What if it's possible that there's more going on here <laughs> that we might be missing if we evaluate this entirely on the basis of, you know, 1800s American colonialists, um, particular sorts of Christian culture taking a particular kind of English translation of the Bible and searching it for deep meaning in a specific context of the sort of Millerite movement. And it, it just, it, it grows out of your observation, Ken, about the the, <laughs> the over overconfidence, I think, with which some of these ideas get, get, to, get expressed. Um, I, I don't know enough. I'm not an expert and I don't know whether the Ishtar Gate 
Um, I can't even remember whether the animals depicted on it are exactly the same as those in Daniel's visions, but in genre, they are the same. They are mixed beasts, and they clearly represent the power and authority of the leader, ruler of Babylon. And I just found myself thinking, hang on a minute, um, I suspect that it would be valuable to approach some of these biblical passages with the humility of recognizing there could be parts of this that, that we're slightly missing. Um, <laughs> so so that that's my anecdote, and I think it fits better here than it would have in episode one. So there we are. There's, there's a... There's a um more uh, that's a really good anecdote like um there's a uh, I've, I've written down a list of things and um, i suspect that we may find it harder to stick within time limits than we'd hoped um when we started recording here um but uh the genre of apocalypse is a genre that there are other writings in it's not like um revelation is the un- only apocalyptic literature that doesn't need to threaten us at all there are other writings of prophets and spiritual leaders contemporary to the biblical ones that we didn't include in the bible because we think on balance that they don't contain god's inspired message um so but the fact that there are other people apart from the bible writers wrote things down doesn't stop us from from having a bible and the fact that other people wrote apocalypses um doesn't stop us from um treating revelation as more important than some of these other works but what it does suggest is this concept of genre, and that changes significantly what it means to read something literally. So if if I said to you, I want, I want you to do a plain reading of a document, and I gave you two documents, and both documents contained a word followed by a number as a list. Word, number, word, number, word, number, word, number, word, number, word, number, word, number. And uh, the first document said John Smith, 02489766, um, James Smith. Zero two four seven three four blah 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 blah. Um, then you would look at that, and because we have telephones, which is a, which is a an element of our broader technological culture, and because we have a familiarity with telephones, and we've used telephones before, and because we're all old enough to remember phone books, we would look at that and say, ah, phone numbers. Hmm. Um, if if the thing said flour two kilos, um, eggs six, uh, you know. Words followed by numbers, which are these are not proper nouns, they're improper nouns and their quantities. This is a shopping list or a recipe. Um, and the nature of the words and the way they're organized means we bring a concept of genre to it when we read it literally. We read it literally within the genre. Mm. So when you say that Revelation is a is a um, inspired piece of apocalyptic literature, um, you are acknowledging it is a piece of apocalyptic literature. What are the sorts of features of that genre? that uh, God through John have used to convey the message? And does that inform the way we should, we should read it? Um, one of the features I'd suggest, Ken, is what you talked about when you talked about ambiguity. And um, I am concerned a little bit by the assurance that, that the way we interpret things in Adventist church is the way it must be interpreted, um, compounded by the assertion that not only must it be interpreted that way, it is very important hmm. that you have a correct understanding of this. Now, each of you has said um, as a disclaimer, well, I'm not an expert on these things. I'm not an expert on history and I'm not an expert on this. If your standing at the end of time is determined by your ability to feel comfortable in your own mind over a specific interpretation of this that's grounded on particular historical facts, 
what we are effectively saying is God can only save experts. Hmm. Um, now, I've said that in an extreme way. I don't think any Adventist would seriously maintain that God can only save um, experts. But when, when you say, no, 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 this thing is sufficiently complicated to warrant a revelation seminar that goes over seven weeks. <laughs> That's how complicated it is. Not something we could explain in 10 minutes. And this thing is very important. What we are implicitly saying is you have to achieve some level of expertise before you can really access the way God's working and will work. And that... Mm. That sort of general atmosphere, I I uh, reject strongly. Um, there's so, a, there's a sense of uh, let's stop there. I've got a few other things to talk about, but yeah, we can, well, no, we completely relevant to that. And we we have a bad habit on this podcast of picking our least favorite sentences from the lesson study guide and then and then sort of launching from them. There there are good things in the lesson study guide, and. Um, the problem is that simply saying I really like this is less conducive to stimulating conversation. So I'm going to do I'm going to do the the unpleasant action. There is a particular sentence in this week's study that that really really grinds against my instincts, and and it's it's trying to describe um, various explanations or the the explanation that Gabriel gives in Daniel eight of the vision that's been given in Daniel. Um, seven, although maybe now I've got myself confused. But the the lesson um, points out that the ram is is named as representing Media Persia, and the male goat is representing Greece. And then the lesson says, though not named, as are the two powers before it, the next entity, the little horn, is obviously Rome. Now I have considerable issue with the word obviously, um, and. I just wondered to myself, trying my best to to practice the skill of displacing myself from my own context and just checking the sanity of my own reactions. Sure, if you're coming at this from a Western European worldview and history context, then obviously the next world superpower was Rome. But what does this what does this speak to the indigenous Australian Aborigines or the ancient um, dynasties of China? Or, or indeed, the indigenous populations of the Americas, where Adventists first played with some of this stuff. I, I just wondered to myself, how obvious is it that this little horn power would in fact be the Roman Empire? And, and again, we come back to my issue about the prospect of confirmation bias. Because what you need also to do is look at where this uh, construction, interpretation of the uh, passages comes from and the cultural context within which uh, it occurred. Mm. And I was reading uh, recently uh, The Seven Story Mountain uh, by Thomas Merton. Um, and uh, he was describing, he lived, uh, uh, he, he's describing a period in his life in 1925. Um, uh, and he was describing his family's attitude, his Protestant family's attitude to Catholics. Um, and uh, I think the division of the world into Protestant and Catholic uh, was something that was just very obvious and assumed. Um, and one was good and one was bad. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so that was the nature of the uh, culture within which the interpretation of these passages was occurring. So if you were going to look for something bad, well, mm. you would look at the Catholics. Um, uh, 
uh, because that was the, the they were the they were the other side, um, mm. uh, and uh, so so and and that division spilled over into civic life, uh, into politics, even as you know late as the Kennedy presidency um, in the U.S. Um, so it seems to me that that's one of the other things that you need to look at when you're saying, well, why and how did this come about? Um, well, because it was obvious that that's where you would look. Um, mm. uh, it may not be so obvious from that perspective now. Uh, Ken, I've got a few things to say about confirmation bias. Um, my kids have been reading the Diary of the Wimpy Kid. Have you ever read the Diary of the Wimpy Kid series? No, I have not done that either, and clearly my cultural education is severely lacking. Well, I haven't read them much either. I've seen the kids read them, but when my dad was down, he picked one of them up, and he was he had got the giggles after a little bit and read a, read a part out to me. In in one section, the character Greg, uh, as a young child, his his parents in a very worried and frustrated tone of and and you know to him a seemingly annoyed and almost frightened tone, complaining about the state of the grout in their house, and he doesn't know what the grout is. So he imagines it to be some creature and um, <laughs> he doesn't realise it's the concrete filling between the tiles. He thinks the grout is, in his mind, it becomes a fully alive monster that is sufficiently powerful that it has his parents worried. His parents are very worried about the state of the grout and it terrorises Craig. And he's always, you know, carrying things with him about the house to defend himself against the grout, should the grout appear. And... At one point in the story, his mother uh, comes to him and he explains to his mother that he's very frightened of the grout. And she digs a bit deeper and finds out what's bothering him and she laughs. And she explains the grout is just, you know, the cement filling between the tiles. And Greg is initially comforted by this. But after she leaves, he realises that, um, that that is exactly, you know, it seems so ridiculous in retrospect, the grout, concrete filling between the tiles. Why would his parents be afraid of the state of the grout if the grout was concrete filling between the tiles and he suddenly realizes that this is exactly what the grout would want him to believe <laughs> and suspects, <laughs> suspects that the person who came to him was not his mother susan but was the grout in disguise <laughs> and, and he redoubles his vigilance so um our capacity for interpreting things is phenomenal humans have an amazing capacity for for finding an argument at its at its most destructive sense this is you know the paranoid delusional person who a serious mentally ill person who really believes that everyone's out to get them and there's a conspiracy against them and finds confirmation for this in everything that they see and and, and the, look the fact is that that uh, as tragic as it is they their um picture of their world uh, and the delusion means that the doctors who are trying to treat them um, are also part of the conspiracy against them. Um, and so, and then this is the story, I've said this on the podcast before, but this is how I know that my house is full of ninjas. Um, it's because ninjas are so sneaky. If they were about, you wouldn't see them. And I haven't seen them, so they must be about. Um, so... Uh, that's how you can tell that ninjas have been in your house stealing things because if you don't notice anything missing, then it's almost certainly ninjas. 
Ah, well, that means that there are no ninjas in your house, Cam, because I hear that the keys regularly get lost. <laughs> and if ninjas were taking them, that wouldn't happen. Um, <laughs> That's like the very excellent joke, Cam. You know, why do elephants paint their toenails red? So that they can hide in strawberry patches. And have you ever seen an elephant in a strawberry patch? Well, that clearly works. Yeah, yeah exactly. So um, how this plays out is um, if you live in, so this is like the, if, if you, this is the sort of counter argument to being too precise. If you live in um, a world with detailed historical records, where a large number of very significant events have their recordings time. You pick almost any year and you can go on Wikipedia and you can find something interesting about that year. Um, then it's easy to find things to fit. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. It just means that it's not necessarily right. Like there's some suggestion we should be cautious here. In the book Fuso's Pendulum by Umberto Eco, there's a publisher who discovers that conspiracy theories sell very well. And it's at the early days of the computers. And he decides that what he will do is write a computer program to essentially scroll through historical data and find coincidences in dates. Mm. And, and using this computer, because the computer can scroll through large numbers of uh, amounts of data. So he, he compiles a large amount of data and looks for, you know, the sorts of um, uh, uh, coincidences that drive delusional conspiracy theories and, and concocts an, a very elaborate conspiracy theory. It's got the classic things in it, doesn't it? Like it has the Holy Grail. It has the Knights Templar. It's got... Almost, almost all of the great conspiracies are wound together into a mega conspiracy. Yeah. And the people who read it believe it to be true. Some of the people who are highly conspiratorial. And effectively... Uh, because they have been telling each other for years that, you know, um, it, people who read it believe it's true and act on the supposition that it's true, and at least enough people do, that what he has put together in a flight of fancy to sell money more or less ends up becoming true. Um, <laughs> but there is a secret society which is coalesces around, you know, um, him. And he ends up getting killed, doesn't he, in the end of it? I think so, Yeah effectively by his own conspiracy theory. Yeah. And um, it's a delightful book exploring some of the notions, you know, how where, where do you draw the line between what's outrageous conspiracy and, you know, the line between being conspiratorial or being like purely objective, purely objective mm. is itself very hard to objectively determine. Everyone thinks they're being purely objective. So there's, the, there's this sort of spectrum. I will say this, um, that there is a element of this which is strongly personality dependent. Uh, we're all just built quite differently. And there are some things that give me a lot of comfort that other people would not get comfort from. Um, you know, there are things I do for fun that a good number of people I know would not do for fun. There are people I find, there are things that I find inspiring that I know other people might not find inspiring. And, um, you know, people who are joggers, they never look like they're having fun when they're jogging, but they'll assure you that it's a really important part of their life. And um, people who are bookworms at school, it's obviously just who they are. And there is a personality, you know, I think that the, it's possible that Revelation would be in the Bible for many reasons. One of them might be there are people who find a nourishment out of this much more fantastically sort of vivid imagery text than 
you know, other parts of the Bible which might feel a bit drier. And um, there are other people who don't. So uh, my question is, last week we talked about uh, the good news of the judgment. It referred to Revelation 14, 6 to 12. If you went and said to someone, I've got some good news, all you need to do is go back to the history books and look up these 14 dates and these five prophecies and correlate these dates with those prophecies and these dates with those prophecies and apply this principle here. And then, you know, uh, then it all works out. Isn't that good news? A substantial number of people I know, and I know this because I'm a maths teacher and I spend all my life making people do things I don't want to do. A substantial number of people, once you got halfway through the process, would interrupt you and say, look, I'm glad you enjoy that, but it's not good news for me. Hmm. I mean, my, my uncle, my uncle, when he got a job in London, um, told uh, his parents that he loved it. It was like doing an eight-hour exam every day. Now, yeah. I can resonate with that, but I bet there's a lot of people who can't. <laughs> and I, my argument is that the people who become pastors and administrators in our church are disproportionately the sort of people who, they're not lying when they say that this is really important and it's, it's good news and it's nourishing and it's encouraging and it's exciting and it's invigorating. They, they're not lying because they believe it to be, that is their lived experience. It's just that there's some suggestion that universally we should all be whipped into a fervour of excitement about connecting dates with prophecies and seeing how it works out. And I'm not sure if that is a universal experience or if it needs to be a universal experience. So um, broadly, I mean, we, one of the things I'm aware of is <clears throat> we're taking it pretty much for granted that anyone listening to this is familiar with the, with the normal traditional Adventist maths that, that goes here. Um, so, I mean, very briefly, it, it basically takes the 2,300 days as rendered in many of the English language translations of Daniel 8.14. It says they have to be years. It um, works out what the start date must be for those years and ends up taking you to 1844. Um, and so it says whatever happens at the end of that 2,300 days in Daniel must have happened in 1844. And you arrive at the cleansing of the sanctuary and they and 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 so the conventional picture is well then 1844 was the commencement of this cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary um which is associated very very strongly with the idea of god's judgment activities and that's why this prophetic mathematics so to speak um um is is in is entwined in fact it's it's the body of this week's lesson which was titled the hour of his judgment uh, because of course in daniel 8 14 the angel's message is um the hour of god's judgment is come um and so last week we were exploring judgment and, and what's being judged and how, how do we factor that in as good news um I, I just simply want to comment my own my own sort of reluctance to get fully carried away with all of these numbers um, stems partly from a concern that you just, it opens, what do you do? So the lesson, the lesson makes a claim, for example, that by, by working through some of these, some of these numbers, you get to AD 27, which is partway through one of the, one of the sub counts within this prophecy. Um, and then, you know, you get to AD 27, which is the year apparently that Christ, the Messiah was baptized and began his ministry. So then you've got this sentence. Daniel predicted hundreds of years in advance the exact year 
for the baptism of Christ, the time at which Jesus would begin his three and a half years of ministry. What if, I mean, I, I don't know that we are exactly that confident about the dating of Jesus's baptism. And what if someone came, uh, uncovered some data that, that suggested it wasn't AD 27, it was AD 29. I, or AD I 26 feel, and a half. Or 26 and a half. I feel personally that that would still be well within sensible uncertainty margins. And here I am speaking as a physicist. Every measurement we ever do, we give thought to how accurately and precisely can you know the outcome of this measurement. If you measure your height um, with a meter ruler in a classroom, you're probably not going to get the height as accurately as if you measure it with laser interferometry. So different measurement tools, different contexts, you have different uncertainty margins where you'd be quite content to say, oh, well, I thought it was 1.8 meters, but it turns out it's 1.85. And okay, that's still pretty much the same. To me, whether Christ was baptized in AD 27 or 29 or 31 or 22, it was a long time ago. Records uh, were taken in a different culture and a different context. And I would be very comfortable with that. I'm pretty resistant to the idea that I need to substantially um, place place in a in a position of foundational importance some some picture that requires um, such particular accuracy in the dating of all of these historical events and I I recognise that what I'm saying maybe maybe sounds a little bit heretical but I'm wondering if anyone feels feels the same thing one of my reluctances is it just opens far too many doors to be proved wrong and I hear this sort of thing come out accidentally I think from the mouths of people sometimes you know saying things like for example if you if you could prove that evolution was true then uh, that would destroy my christian faith and i sort of wondered to myself surely surely it would be nice to have a connection to god and a faith and an, and a following of christ that that was able to be strong enough even to withstand that sort of thing you know if if you if you could prove if you could prove that christ was crucified in in whatever year instead of what has to it has to be 31 i think in the counting on the lesson but what if it was 35 ad 35 um i i hope that the sort of christian faith we are attempting to cultivate as we follow god in the way of jesus is the sort of faith that is robust enough to be able to deal with that sort of uncertainty margin and i get nervous when i when i sort of encounter something which in its efforts to try and make it sound so watertight and so clear, and I know their motivation, they're trying to demonstrate the um, the inspiration of the Bible and the rightness of the Bible and thus the trustworthiness of the Bible on other things. I understand that, and I, and I think it's reasonably well-intentioned, but it, it, it necessarily, in my, mind's, in my mind, leads to a, um, a faith that is brittle. Any small bump on it and it might all crack to pieces that i think it it reverses the way thing and the way things should work and i understand this works in both directions um i'm not putting this in a binary way uh, but i think there's a danger of uh trusting god because of the bible rather than trusting his word in the bible because of god <laughs> um it is God who is trustworthy. Um, uh, the Bible points us to God, but mm. the Bible is not God. Um, 
the it is the trustworthiness of the author. Now, that means there must be an element of integrity in the text. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, I trust the author because I know them, uh, not just because of what is said in a, in the book that they have written. Um, I don't know. That's that's a. I think I think that my element of discomfort is this: um, if my son Matthew, age uh, six, said to me, "Daddy, what's it like being grown up?" I said, "Ah, oh, right. Um, well, being grown up, you uh, you have to spend ninety percent of what you earn, hundred percent sometimes, on things like bread, and you know, there's not much Lego." Um, and cars and rent and house and you um, you're not living with your mum and dad you're out on your own and you get up every day and you go to a job and when you go to the job you have a, a boss who gives you things to do and they you have to do those things um, to get paid and um, you get four weeks of holiday a year and um, you spend a lot of time thinking about the needs of other people Matthew would be very uh, upset at the notion of being grown up. Interestingly, a lot of young people are increasingly upset about being grown up, and they are encouraged in this attitude by their parents. Uh, it's a statistic. It's a, it's a phenomenon. Oh, I want my kids to enjoy being kids. Now, there's a part of that which is very healthy, but there's a part of it which is unhealthy because having responsibilities as an adult means you have less time to spend on your own interests. But there is a huge amount of satisfaction in having responsibilities at work and responsibilities at home and in, to have some power of decision-making that's borne out from experience where you've reached an age where hopefully you can make good decisions or ask questions where you don't. You know, there's an element of it which is stressful um, and there's an element of it in which it's certainly not fun in the same sense that bouncing on a trampoline when you're six is fun and you have not seen the pure embodiment of joy unless you've seen Matthew bounce on the trampoline for an hour <laughs> and then complain at the end of it that it's time to hop off the trampoline. So, um, you know, adult life is just quite different to mm. what Matthew lives. Um, if I explained the factual particulars of what an adult life is like, he would not look forward to it. But I think he'd be wrong not to look forward to it. Uh, if I was going to explain something to Matthew, I would have to say something like, um, when you build Lego and you buy a Lego kit um, and you build it according to the instructions and the first five Lego sets you get, you build according to the instructions. So this is the experience in my house. And then you pull it apart and you build it according to the instructions again. And then you build it apart and according to the instructions again. Then you build it, uh, pull it apart and build it according to the instructions again. And after about, you know, if, if they get their first Lego kit when they're four or five, after about the six millionth time it's been pulled apart and put together again according to the instructions, um, you, like you start to experiment. Hmm. And now that you're six, you don't build Lego sets from the instructions. You think, I want to build a crazy monster with three heads and four arms and wheels at its back and a house for it to live in and whatever, and then you just build it. And that's a bit like the difference between being a child and being grown up, is that as a child, more help is given and children accept more guidance and support around them. But when you're grown up, you, you operate outside the instructions, as it were, and there's a bit more autonomy. Now, I think that's a, that's a pretty good metaphor for the difference between being a child and being an adult. In its factual particulars, it's, 
It's my, mm. my life is not actually very much like building Lego. Mm. Um, so if God is trying to explain to us, if it is true that at the moment we see darkly, we see as in a mirror dark, but later on we'll, we'll see and understand, mm. um, you know, as the Apostle Paul says, if it is true that God has things to explain to us which are beyond us, that are larger than us, then necessarily the metaphors and the pictures and the ways he uses to explain it must not be factually accurate in the sense that we're not capable of receiving the factually accurate statement. In other words, I could say, I could make a statement to Matthew about being grown up, which is factually accurate to me, mm. but which might not be to him because he's a child. So that speaks to me very strongly against pinning too many hopes on a very strict and narrow interpretation of something in Revelation. So I think our t I, I agree with you completely. I think our time is getting close to an end. I just, my final thoughts grow exactly out of what you're saying, Cam. If that's the case, then what, rather than, I've done a fair bit of nitpicking, I suppose. Um, I want to, my final thought, I want to read a paragraph um, from the lesson because I resonate with it very much. It, it starts by quoting Daniel 9.26, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So the 62 weeks form part of the counting of this time period. The lesson points out, The Messiah would be cut off or crucified, but the verse adds, but not for himself. In other words, the death of Christ on Calvary's cross was for us, not for himself. Which is why Paul could write, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5 verse 8. I resonate deeply with everything that that paragraph communicated. And I think in the context of pondering the hour of God's judgment, it's very difficult. We still haven't really nailed down exactly what we think the judgment is. Um, that was something we, we tried to do last week and didn't quite. But I think that this passage in Daniel and the pictures in Revelation both are comforting in the broad strokes where they identify a a time limit on the exploitative, um, oppressive evils that that some people experience very vividly, and I suspect we experience somewhat abstractly, um, given our cultural and historical setting. But God's prophetic messages speak of of limit time limiting that in some way, and of His intervention. I think this is what judgment means: God's intervention. Um, to to rescue. In other words, the pictures of the judgment are not so wildly different from the pictures of the Exodus that sort of begin the Old Testament. Uh, certainly, the the Israelite story in the Old Testament. Um, and so, on those strokes, I can quite fundamentally resonate with the idea of of some of these passages, and indeed, on the idea of the hour of God's judgment being come. Mm. Can I use a um, passage, not from the lesson, but from a book that I recently finished called How to Inhabit Time by James uh, K.A. Smith, Understanding the Past, Facing the Future, Living Faithfully Now. Um, and one of the things I want to say is, although I struggle with the uh, detailed um, articulation of these prophecies and how they're fulfilled, uh, in the broad picture, uh, we are living in a world created by God, uh, a world uh, that God, through Christ, but not only through Christ, has entered. Um, 
and a world in which he is coming again. Um, we're living in that tension between the past and the future and the now. Um, so, and and this this is one of the the elements of from Genesis to Revelation, um, and indeed um, uh, Gutierrez, a liberation theologian, uh, describes time as the temple of God. Uh, that the human history he describes, and I might even refine that to say, human experience uh, is the temple of God. Um, that this is this is where he lives. Um, in in light of that, um, and now he this book then quotes from a young Heidegger who observes that it the question of Christ's coming is not a cognitive question. He observes it is not a question of information. It's not a question of whether they know the day or hour, the date of arrival. Rather, the question is decided in dependence on their own life. The question is not whether we know what's coming, but how we live in the light of such an expectation. If you believe Christ is coming, the question isn't when, but how. The question is not how long have we got, but rather how should we live now in the light of that expectation? How will the future shape your present? And eschatology is a theology about how we live in the now. I think that's a really insightful um, uh, thought. That mm. Because if you think about it, so much of our now is shaped by the future that we expect. Just as it is shaped by our past, mm. our, our, our past informs our now, but the future also informs our now. What we expect to be also informs our now and interprets our past. Uh, so how are we living now in light of that future? Ken, that is an excellent question on which to finish. Uh, although obviously that question doesn't invite a finish, as it were. It's really the start of hopefully a, a week's worth of thinking and pondering. Uh, it is for me and uh, for our listener also, let, uh, let's hope. And um, uh, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast or, or you have any other uh, thoughts, encouragement, correction, or um, uh, your own pet uh, way of connecting dates between various books in the Bible, then um, you can email them to us, if you so wish, at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and uh, share this podcast with any of your friends who you feel might benefit from it. And uh, please join us again next week.